As we resume our Bible study tonight, we will pick up again in questions and answers that have been submitted from around the world. This question is, what is the difference between the, number one, Spirit of the Lord, number two, Spirit of God, number three, Spirit of the Lord God, and number four, the Holy Spirit, in terms of their substance, if that's the correct word, and their role or application. Is there a difference between the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord God, and the Holy Spirit? Well, let's go look at some of the scriptures. The first one, number one, was Spirit of the Lord. That phrase, exactly in those words, appears 28 times in the Bible, 23 times in the Old Testament, five times in the New Testament. Let's go look at where it's first used. Spirit of the Lord. Let's go to Judges chapter 3, verse 10. Judges chapter 3, verse 10. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. Let me give you a chance to find it. Judges chapter 3, verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. Why doesn't it say the Lord's Spirit? Because you can't say that in Biblical Hebrew in a word pair construct. It's always word of word. So the Spirit of the Lord simply refers to what you and I would call in today's vernacular the Lord's Spirit. Let's stay in Judges and go to chapter 6, verse 4. Go ahead. Don't you think in that particular verse it's an enablement? It is an enablement. It's a gift or enablement because just like it, when Moses had the ark made, it was God's spirit who gifted all these craftsmen with unusual skills. Correct. And they were said to be spirit-filled. Yep. So we've got a bunch more verses to look at here before we draw that conclusion, but that's what we're going to draw when we're done. We're heading there. Okay. We're headed there. Judges chapter 6, verse 4. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza. Wait a minute, I must be in the wrong place. I must be, let's see. So let's just ignore that. I'm going to go to chapter 11. Because that one, I wrote something down wrong. 1129. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead of Manasseh. Again, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. It embodies him with power, with the ability to get a task accomplished. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Starting in verse 13, we're going to look at 13 and 14. This is about King Saul. 1 
and Samuel anointing Saul. Verse 13, it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil. What kind of oil do you suppose? Motor oil? Olive oil, of course. And anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. David was known as a great king, but even more than that, he was known as a prophet and a psalmist. What gave him that power to prophesy and to write such great psalms? The Spirit of the Lord. It was his enablement. Let's go to the New Testament and look at some of the occurrences. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Verse 18. And remember this one, because this is going to come up in the next question. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Messiah has defeated Satan. He goes into the synagogue to do the half Torah reading. On what day? On Shabbat. As his custom was, verse 16 says, he went into the synagogue on the Shabbat. In verse 18, he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. So what did the Spirit of the Lord being poured out do? Allow him to preach the gospel to the poor. It's an anointing. Don't anointing. What does the olive oil used in the anointing process represent? Represents the Holy Spirit. That's why. The three offices that are, are anointed with olive oil are the what? Prophet, priest, and king. What three offices does Messiah fill? Prophet, priest, and king. So anyone anointed to be a prophet, a priest, or a king is executing part of the responsibility of Messiah. It's an anointing. It's a delegation of authority. Mm -hmm. Let's go to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 9. Ooh, we know this story. Ananias and Sapphira. In verse 9 it says, Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? What did he mean to test the spirit of the Lord? <laughs> to provoke, right. Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias came in and lied to them about a financial matter. And the Lord slayed him. And they went out and buried him. Then come his wife and tells the very same lie. And Peter says, you're not lying to us. You're lying to the spirit of the Lord. And then what happened to her? First one to be slain in the spirit. No, she's the second. Her husband was first. She was second. So they went out and buried her by her husband. Let's go to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 39. Philip has just baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. 
says that when it came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. So is it just a power and ability and authority that comes upon a person or is it more than that? It's, it's more than that. Yeah, it's a person. Yeah. The word caught is harpazo, which is the same word as the rapture. The Spirit of the Lord is powerful enough to pick him up and move him and set him down in another place. A radical departure. <laughs> What's that a picture of? Yeah, the rapture resurrection, you bet. The last one on the Spirit of the Lord, let's go to Second Chronicles. No, Second Corinthians. We'll go there instead. I want to stay in the New Testament. Second Corinthians chapter 3. And there's a particular reason I want to end the Spirit of the Lord with this one. And you'll see right away when we read verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. What does verse 17 mean when it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit? There's no guesswork who the Holy Spirit is. Who is the Lord? The Spirit is the Lord. He is God. He is Messiah. He's Yeshua. We're, we're going to soon start to see that these words will be used interchangeably. So let's go to the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of the Lord, the word Lord was the tetragrammaton, the yod heh vav -Heh in Hebrew, those four Hebrew letters. The Spirit of God, God here is Elohim, Hebrew word 430, where Lord was Hebrew word 3068, for those making those kind of notes. It appears 29 times in the Bible. How many times does the Spirit of the Lord appear? 28. 28. This one appears 29 times. I lost the number of Spirit of God, Elohim. Spirit of God. The, uh, Hebrew. the word for God is Hebrew word 430. The word spirit is the same in every case. It's the Hebrew word 7307. Ruach. Ruach. So the spirit of God appears 29 times in the Bible, 14 in the Old Testament, 15 in the New Testament. Where do you think it appears first in the Bible? Genesis, one. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. So let's turn back to Genesis 1 verse 2. Which tells us that the Spirit of God has been from the very beginning. So is this God Elohim? This God is Elohim, right. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The first thing you know, what pops in your mind, God is a Spirit. Just as we saw in 2 Corinthians, the Lord is spirit, and spirit is the Lord. God is the spirit, the spirit is God. So it began in verse 1, in the beginning, Bereshit, Barah, Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Number two, the earth was without form and void. The darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, notice how they go back and forth between God and the spirit of God from verse to verse. The next one I want us to see is in Exodus chapter 31. Exodus 31. Verse 3. And I'll, I'll turn to Exodus 31 too. Verse 3. Starting in verse 1 for context. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Who's speaking? The Lord is speaking. See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Who filled him with the Spirit of God? The Lord filled him with the Spirit of God. In wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works. So what does the Spirit of God do here for Bezalel? Gives him the understanding, the wisdom, the ability, the power. It empowers him to do that which God instructs, right? It has to be the very T because what? It pictures what's in heaven. So God has to make exact reproductions of that which is in heaven. Could you sit down with a pencil and paper and draw out exactly what's in heaven without God's help? No, neither could Bezalel. You're right. Then to 1 Samuel 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10. Yep. We saw in Genesis 1-1 that the Spirit of God does more than just come upon people to give them supernatural abilities as it was hovering over the face of the waters doing the act of creation. And of course, who created the heavens and the earth according to John 1-1? Yeshua did and Colossians chapter 1. But we're in 1 Samuel 10-10. I'm just tap dancing while people get there. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. Who gave David the power to prophesy? The Spirit of the Lord. Who gave this prophet the power to prophesy? The Spirit of God. And it's Saul who's prophesying. That was 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 10. He was the first holy roller, if I remember that scene correctly. <laughs> we won't go there. 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 6. Again referring to Saul. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news. And his anger was greatly aroused. Why would the Spirit of God coming upon Saul cause him to get his anger greatly aroused? It's righteous indignation. The people are sinning against God, and God's Spirit does not like that, does it? It does not. 1 Samuel chapter 19, there are two verses I want to see here. Kind 
kind of implies is Saul would not have get angry upon it on his own because his heart was not God's heart, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. 1 Samuel chapter 19. First verse 20 and then verse 23. 1 Samuel chapter 19, first verse 20 says, Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. So not only does David prophesy and Saul prophesy, but here there's a whole group of messengers. And they're all prophesying as the Spirit of God comes upon them. And then in verse 23, so he went there to Naoth in Ramah, then the Spirit of God was upon him also, and he went on and prophesied until he came to Naot in Ramah. Yes, ma'am. Prophesy means to speak forth the word of God. It can foretell the future, but it doesn't have to. When God gives you a message to speak, that is prophecy. Most, most often it is simply speaking God's message. Most often it is calling for repentance. Thus saith the Lord, repent ye sinners. Yeah, That's what prophecy is most of the time. That's not what modern day prophets want to do. Modern day prophets... Well, never mind. It's not important. Yeah, Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 24. We will talk about modern prophets tomorrow as we study in Deuteronomy. Second Chronicles 24. Verse 20. Second Chronicles chapter 24. It's about Joash. Remember him? Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, who stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he also has forsaken you. So to answer Rachel's question, Whenever you see, thus says God, or thus says the Lord, that means somebody is about to prophesy. They're speaking forth what God said. Technically, a preacher is a prophet when he reads from the word of God and says, this is what God said. It doesn't have to be a new revelation. It's speaking forth the words of God. Now let's look at the New Testament. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. This is about John the Baptist and Messiah's baptism. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And when he, that's Messiah Yeshua, had been baptized... 
Yeshua came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There are theologians out there who say, Yeshua, he wasn't really virgin born, you know. You don't believe that story. Mary was just fooling around with a Roman soldier and got pregnant. But here is where he becomes Messiah. The Holy Spirit comes down upon him and he becomes the Messiah. Anybody believes that? I got a bridge to sell you somewhere near Brooklyn. Why did the Spirit of God descend like a dove upon Messiah? It's a witness to who he was. But one witness is not sufficient. Where's the second witness? The voice from heaven, the bot coal. These are the two witnesses that no one standing there seeing this and observing this should have any doubt whatsoever whether Yeshua is the Messiah or not. Because they have seen two witnesses. It's almost like a, um, a reiteration of the dove coming back to the ark. Kind of like the dove coming back to the ark. But you know, there's something funny that comes out of this. If you read the Talmud, they say that the Holy Spirit can come in the form of any bird except a dove. <laughs> Do you think that was written before or after Messiah's baptism? Of course it was after. It's kind of like planting the documents. <laughs> yeah. Let's go to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, verse 28. Like the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God gives people powers and abilities. And if you notice, the letters are red. And the scribes and Pharisees are accusing Messiah of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And in verse 28, Messiah says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So how did Messiah cast out the demons? By the Spirit of God. Now one that we absolutely cannot ignore is in Romans chapter 8. Because it's going to help resolve the issue raised in a question. Romans chapter 8. Verse 9. But... You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. No, the spirit is capitalized. This is translated from Greek, and Greek has capital letters. So what do they mean by the spirit? The Holy Spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Messiah, he is not his. So what do you see in verse 9? The Holy Spirit, the spirit of God, and the spirit of Messiah are... All the same. They're using the, the terms interchangeably. Yeah. Yeah. And the spirit of, of Messiah. Messiah is the Lord. So the Holy Spirit, the spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of Messiah, the spirit of the Lord are all one and the same. Interchangeable terms. But let's look also in that same chapter. Romans chapter 8 verse 14. 
For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So what does every child of God have? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, described here as the Spirit of God, one and the same. Can we go to a dozen different scriptures that say we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Of course. But if we're not, it says we're here. Right. 1 Corinthians 3. First Corinthians 3, verse 16. A wise rabbi once told me that things that are different are never the same. And I had to disagree. Sometimes we have multiple terms that are used interchangeably. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And 1 Corinthians 12.3 which I underlined in my notes but only once whereas Romans 8.9 I underlined twice. Not that y'all care, I'm just tap dancing while you find 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Which says, therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Yeshua accursed. And no one can say that Yeshua is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Which two terms are they saying is the same here? The Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit. In verse 4 it says, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. Okay, the next one is the spirit of the Lord God. It appears only once in the scripture. And that's in Isaiah 61.1. The only time it appears. And it shouldn't even appear once. They didn't translate it correctly. Or let's say they didn't translate it literally. How about that? Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. Remember when we were in Luke 4, I said, remember this verse? We're going to see it again in a minute. We're seeing it again now. Messiah quotes this in Luke chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 18. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The word Lord there, notice it's a capital L and lowercase O-R-D. That's not the tetragrammaton. That's the word Adonai. Literally the word Adonai, which means my Lord. And then the word God with a capital G and small caps O and D, that's not God. That's the tetragrammaton. So this should say, the spirit of my Lord, the Lord, is upon me. So it merely gives emphasis to the fact that the Lord, Isaiah calls my Lord, mine. I'm claiming him. Y'all can go around and do what you want, but I'm claiming the Lord is my Lord. So the spirit of my Lord. It should say, the spirit of my Lord is the Lord. Yep, my Lord meaning my master. 
The spirit of my master is the Lord. And last, the Holy Spirit appears 100 times in the Bible. Three times in the Old Testament, in none of which should it be translated the Holy Spirit. It's the spirit of holiness. Yeah, we will look at those. 97 times in the New Testament, generally translated correctly. So let's look first in the Old Testament at Psalm 51. Psalm 51. So, were the, were the Psalms written in order that they are presented? Of course not. Okay. Some of the Psalms were written by Moses, like Psalm 90. And so you have Psalms of David that come before Psalm 90. And how long was David after Moses? 400 plus years. Okay. Yeah. So why are they in the order they're in? Somebody liked them that way. Yeah. Somebody put them in that order. Okay. Psalm 51.11 says, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. It should literally read, your spirit of holiness. Literally, your spirit of holiness. We sing a song in here, Kadosh. Kadosh is an adjective. It means holy. This word is Kodesh, which is a noun, which is holiness. Kadosh, holy. Kodesh, holiness. Kodesh HaKodeshim, the holy of holies. Y'all say, didn't care about that. Okay. Isaiah 63.10. The little nuances can be very important. I agree with you. Isaiah 63.10. Do I see a difference? Not when it's referring to God's spirit of holiness. So when, when David is saying, do not take your spirit of holiness from me, he's literally talking about that spirit of God that was put upon him. Correct. Right. So Remember, God took the anointing off of Saul. Right. And he doesn't want him, God to take that same anointing off of him. So if it's the same Holy Spirit that David had, David was legitimately worried that God was going to take away his spirit of holiness because of the, because of the, sin. the sin with Bathsheba. That, that is that God would take away his anointing because David was anointed and the spirit came upon him. And so the idea if the spirit could be taken away from Saul or from others because of sin, then... David repented deeply, praying that God would not take that spirit away. Because if he had not repented deeply, God would have taken it away. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, even Paul knows that because what we just read in First Corinthians 3, it says, do you not know that you're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Exactly. If anyone defiles the temple of God, it doesn't say God is still hanging around. It does not say it that, does it? God will destroy it. No, destroy it. Yeah. Implying what? God could not destroy the temple back in the time of um, the southern kingdom when his Holy Spirit was there. Right, the Holy Spirit departed before Babylon was able to destroy the temple. You're absolutely correct. So, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. Yeah. But, let's go to the next one. Isaiah 63.10. Did we get there? Nope, I don't think we did. We turned to it, but we didn't read it. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, no, and grieved his spirit of holiness. So he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. Do you think he left his spirit of holiness upon them as he turned against them and fought against them? No. Just like it says in the New Testament. Right. So in Psalm 51.11, it's your spirit of holiness. This time in Isaiah 63.10, it's his spirit of holiness. To make sure we understand that God's spirit is a spirit of holiness. It's a description of the type of spirit God has. Can God walk in sin? The answer is no. Can God lie? No. God is holy. His spirit is holy. Isaiah 63, 11 is the very next verse. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? Again, it's not his Holy Spirit. It's his spirit of holiness. If God puts his spirit in us, his spirit of holiness, how does he expect us to walk? In holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Where does it say that? In Hebrews chapter 12. Let's turn up and look at that because that is such an important teaching. It takes some serious tap decks to get around that. That just takes ignoring the scriptures. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What's that, Daniel? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is quite clear about that, isn't quite it? Clear. But it's like when you, when you say that that can't happen, you're just pretty much denying the scriptures. What the scriptures say. You're pretty much denying the scriptures. And what you're saying is, I want to live in sin and be saved anyway. I want to be lukewarm. Lukewarm? How does God deal with lukewarm? Yeah, not good. So in Isaiah 63, 11, it's also literally his spirit of holiness. So Psalm 51, 11, your spirit of holiness, talking about God. And in 63, 10, 11, it's his spirit of holiness. Now let's look at some of the New Testament verses. Go to Matthew chapter 1. 
Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. I just saw a clip just a few minutes before I left to come here of Andy Stanley talking about the virgin birth and saying you can't really believe that. You can't really believe that. What does the Bible say? Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Yeshua the Messiah was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So what's Andy in, in essence saying? That he does not believe the Bible is true and correct. He says the Bible's unreliable. If you believe that you cannot trust God at his word, then... How are you going to trust him to get to heaven? Then? Yeah, you got a real problem. So in, what's that... It means that if you don't believe the words of God, you don't have faith. What does faith mean? It's imunah, it's believing what God said. I mean, it's, it's a basic principle taught to us by Abraham. God, he accounted it to him for righteousness when Abraham believed. Right. And what is that verb there? Ha'amin. Which means, like, God, you said it, I believe it. There you go. If God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That is faith. God is not in So in Matthew 1.18... The literal Greek says the Holy Spirit. Holy here is an adjective. Let's look at. Yes, ma'am? Uh, these were written in Hebrew first. Right? These were written in Hebrew first, translated then to Greek. So, how would the Holy Spirit have been written in Hebrew? I would like to go back 2,000 years and read it to be sure. Right. I have Hebrew originals, well, I should say Hebrew texts that are older than the Greek, but you still can't swear they weren't translated from something back to Hebrew. Chapter 1, verse 20. Still Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. That's actually not what the Greek says, believe it or not. The Greek says that which is conceived in her is from, from the Spirit, is holy. So that which is conceived in her from the Spirit is holy. If, if we were transferring from this back to Hebrew, would we, would we not say Ruach or Kodesh? Uh, I mean, we'd try to. <laughs> wouldn't we? Not in this case, because this one isn't Holy Spirit anyway. Um, it literally does not say the Holy Spirit in Greek. It says, quote, from the Spirit is holy. So that which is conceived in or from the Spirit is holy, referring to the child. Would you go through that one more time? Just I'll try. Three sentences. Yes. In verse 20, it literally says, that which is conceived in her 
from the whole from the spirit is holy. holy. In other words, Yeshua is holy. Yes, the baby Yeshua is holy. So it's referring not to the Holy Spirit, but to the holiness of the child. Our translation is just wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Chapter 3, verse 11 of Matthew. Just yeah. Yeah. I'm picking up on that more and more that I read it. You know, this, this, the Lord's showing me. I think now I, I'm, I'm appreciating that He's trusting me more with the truth. Yeah. Does the Bible say to study to show yourself approved or glance at to show yourself approved? Yeah. Yeah. Chapter 3, verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That literally does and should read the Holy Spirit. The word holy there is an adjective. And then I went to the very last occurrence, and that's in the book of Jude. Jude. If you ask me what chapter, you're not there yet. Verse 20. But you, beloved... Building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit there is translated correctly. Holy is an adjective. So we have the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of my Lord, the Lord, and the Holy Spirit. These terms are used interchangeably. And what that teaches us is the Lord is God. There is not a difference. Good and loud. You told me this several, I guess several months back. There is a translation of spirit of holiness in Romans 1-4. Yes, let's go to Romans 1-4. That wasn't in the question, but that will round us out. Because it shows where Yeshua got his power from. Romans 1.4 says, And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. And that is translated correctly in 1.4. The spirit of holiness, which is the way the Holy Spirit was translated, if translated correctly, in the Old Testament. So is the, way they, the way they printed it here is, spirits capitalized, holiness is a lowercase. Is that correct, or should it be? That's correct. Or, or should it be both, both of them? No, the spirit refers to God's spirit. Right. And God's spirit is a spirit of holiness. holiness. So holiness, so holiness in itself is not a capitalizing. Right. Okay. Doesn't need to be capitalized. It simply stresses that God's spirit is a spirit of holiness. So that ties the Old and the New Testaments together. To let us know that we're talking about one and the same thing. So my answer to the question here is, what's the difference? None. They're interchangeable. Like what do they do? A literary thing. A literary thing. 
almost every Hebrew verse in the Bible begins with and. So the translators translate as and so, but, therefore, whatsoever, all kinds of things. Why they do that, I think they just get tired of saying and. Wait, I have a question about how the Holy Spirit manifests. Is it fire, wind, oil, water? I mean, is there any other ways that the Holy Spirit manifests? Sometimes the Holy Spirit simply comes upon a person with no physical manifestation. Like in Acts 2, there's the divided tongues of fire. In Matthew 3, there was the dove coming down. Oftentimes, it's simply, it comes upon you because God puts it upon you. Small, still voice. Small, still voice. Sometimes people laid on hands and people receive the Holy Spirit, but sometimes they just receive the Holy Spirit because God ordains it. Brother Wayne? Yes, back, in Judge, back in Judges now, uh, chapter 6, you gave us one verse. It should be 20, uh, 34, verse 34. Okay, let's go back to Judges 6. Verse 34. She says it's verse 34, not verse 4. I just missed a character. So thank you, Miss Betty. Judges, let's go to Judges 6. This was for the Spirit of the Lord, the very first one. Judges 6, verse 34. Yes, but the Spirit of the Lord came upon whom? Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet, and the Abizarites gathered behind him. So how was it that Gideon had the confidence to go conquer all these places without any kind of fear. Yeah, he had a lot of signs, but the Spirit of God came upon him, right? Kept the trying. Spirit of the Lord. Alright. For the next question, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 61. And I think I've already answered it answering the question before but let me read you the question it says Isaiah 61 1 reads the spirit of the Lord God is upon me but when Yeshua repeats this passage in Luke 4 18 remember I said mark that it comes up saying the spirit of the Lord is upon me why does Yeshua omit the reference to God Isaiah 61 1 That's exactly right. The word God is not in Isaiah 61.1 if it's translated correctly. So, my answer is Isaiah 61.1 should read, The Spirit of my Lord, the Lord. The word God is not in the Hebrew. And when it comes to Isaiah speaking it, Isaiah is saying, The Lord is my Lord. In Luke 4, when Messiah is speaking it, He is the Lord. So instead of saying, my Lord is the Lord, he is the Lord, he simply says the Lord. Which speaks volumes about who is he really? He is the Lord from time immemorial, from the beginning. The next one is a cute question. Serious question, but a cute question. I heard a radio rabbi Say that Bezalel, referred to in Exodus 31-2, is the pre-incarnate Yeshua 
because of some nuance in the Hebrew in this passage. Can you see anything in the Hebrew here that indicates that? So that's a good question. Let's go back to Exodus 31, verse 2. We were, yeah. And I almost want to jump in and go, whoa, 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 there's another question here. But I, I thought it would be nice and put them in order. Exodus 31, 2. Verse 1 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. Bezalel is a name, yes, and names in Hebrew are often made by combining words, and that's the case with Bezalel. What is Bezal? Egg and ale, God. So his name means egg of God. It is a strange name. I mean, yeah, but obviously his mother had eggs for breakfast one morning and said, why don't I name the kid Bezalel? Yeah. But the egg is oftentimes used as an illustration when somebody says, would you explain to me triunity versus trinity? Because an egg has a shell, then a white, then a yolk. So I don't know if that's what the radio rabbi might have been trying to get across is that an egg is a way you can use to describe the triunity when it's otherwise so hard to do. But could this even possibly be pre-incarnate Yeshua? The answer is no. Because Bezalel is the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. So he's a human person with two human parents. And our Messiah Yeshua was born of a virgin. So it's not even possible. And I think that's enough for that question. But a betza is an egg. Next question is about Acts chapter 2. So let's turn up to Acts chapter 2. Remember the questions come from many people and compiled over time. So there isn't any real significance about the order. Acts chapter 2 verse 38. You guys know this verse. You could probably quote it to me. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Yeshua the Messiah for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The question says, why does Peter refer only to baptism in the name of Yeshua and not also the Father and the Son as instructed by Yeshua in Matthew 28, 19? So keep a finger here. Go to Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. There is a teaching out there. I think Karen's asked about it before. There's a teaching out there that says Matthew 28.19 is wrong. That it should say, in the name of Yeshua, 
and that the verse was changed by the Catholic Church in the fourth century to try and prove Trinity. That's a false teaching. That's a false teaching, but it's very prevalent out there. If it was Trinity, it would be names. The name is singular. Yes, name is singular. So, so when it says the name is singular, it's saying that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. Yeah. But there's that teaching out there. But there's only one God, and the, the New Testament does not violate that principle. You are correct. So, let's take a look at my answer. My answer is, first of all, Peter was emphasizing the need to believe in Yeshua. Those righteous men from around the Jewish world, do they believe in God? Yes. yes. Do they believe in the Holy Spirit? Yes. yes. Had they been believers in Yeshua? No. So this is where he's saying you need to update your theology because God is God. He is the Holy Spirit, but he's also Yeshua. So it was in the need, emphasizing the need to believe in Yeshua as well as the Father and the Holy Spirit. It is not, as some say, that Matthew 28, 19 was corrupted later by the Catholic Church with the addition of the Father and the Holy Spirit, and now I'm going to prove it. So take notes here if you're a note taker. Irenaeus, in about A.D. 185, so how long is that before Catholicism? A couple hundred years, says... And again, giving to the disciples the power of regeneration into God, he said to them, quote, Go and disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. End quote. That's from Against Heresies, Volume 3, Chapter 17, Verse 1. So hundreds of years before the Roman Catholic Church introduced the doctrine of the Trinity, Irenaeus quoted Matthew 28, 19, as it is written in our Bibles. Hippolytus, do you know him? Who? Hippolytus, H-I-P-P-O-L-Y-T-U-S. He's another one called an anti-Nicene father, as is Irenaeus. He was about in the year A.D. 225. He wrote, the Father's word, therefore, knowing the economy and the will of the Father, to wit, that the Father seeks to be worshipped in none other way than this, gave this charge to the disciples after he rose from the dead. Quote, Go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. End quote. That's quote within a quote, of course. And by this he showed that whosoever omitted any one of these failed in glorifying God perfectly. For it is through this trinity that the Father is glorified. He didn't mean trinity the way the Catholic Church developed trinity. For the Father willed, the Son did, the Spirit manifested. That's from Against the Heresy of One Notice, paragraph 14, in Anti-Nicene Fathers, volume 5, American edition, Edinburgh, T.N.T. Clark, 1885. The only thing that's important is when he quotes Matthew 28, 19, he quotes it as it's written. What was the, the approximate year on the... 225. The other, the Irenaeus was 185. 185. Sip, uh, Hippolytus, 225. Cyprian, 
249 to 258. Cyprian, C-Y-P-R-I-A-N. 249 to 258. The Lord, when, after his resurrection, he sent forth his apostles, charges in them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So he quotes from verses 18 on exactly as it's written in our Bible. It says, in the Apostle John, remembering this charge, subsequently lays it down in this epistle. Hereby, says he, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that says he knows him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Citing 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. This is 249 to 258 Common Era. And he says, if you're not obeying the commandments of God, you don't know him. It says, you prompt the keeping of these precepts. You observe the divine and heavenly commands. This is to be a confessor of the Lord. This is to be a martyr of Messiah, he uses Christ. To keep the firmness of one's profession inviolate among all evils and secure. This is from to Moises and Maximus and the rest of the confessors. Epistle 24, colon 2. From the Anti-Nicene Fathers, volume 5. Lucius of Castra Galbe, Lucius is L-U-C-I-U-S, of Castra, C-A-S-T-R-A, Galbe, G-A-L-B-A-E, 257 A.D. And again, after his resurrection, sending his apostles, he charged them, saying, quote, All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, end quote. I won't read the rest of the quote, but what does it tell us? He quotes the verse exactly as we have it. King James? <laughs> Not quite, but... Did the Catholic Church add Father and Holy Spirit in that verse? No, they did not. They've always been there. But as you point out, name is singular, it's not names. So, one God, one Father, one Holy Spirit, a triunity, not a trinity. The next question comes from Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. So let's go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Back to the question. I have heard this used to explain all sort of awful things happening to believers who love the Lord and keep his commandments. There is also almost a boast that because someone is suffering or has had an accident, etc., that the Lord loves that person because they are being given these sufferings. 
So naturally, he is continually rebuking and chastening them, which often equates to some exceptional form of hardship or suffering. This has troubled me because it sounds like you can be the best person possible and you'll still get hit with a four by two from the Lord. But if someone is repentant and living the godliest life possible, it wouldn't make sense for Yeshua to just rebuke and chasten because that would not be just. So isn't Yeshua clarifying this by saying that he will rebuke and chasten those who are not zealously following him and you don't continually repent when necessary, rather than you just get whacked continually because he loves you. Spirit rod, spoil the child. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> no, the person who asked the question is absolutely correct. We get rebuked and chastened when we are sinning mm -hmm. to try and bring us back to repentance, to get us back on the path. God does not just whack his children with continual sickness, adversity, and horrible things because he loves us. He also prunes us, which is directed at improving the quality of our life as well as our produce. Yep. So it's, uh, you know, like people could say, oh no, here he comes with the pruning shears again. Well, it's for your good. It's for your good. It's not a punishment. Now, I've got a whole bunch of verses for us to look at, so... Go ahead. Well, the, he made us free will agents. And that plays into a lot. And if we're really, really honest, we can look at our lives and say, you know what, I didn't really do the best I could, or I really made some bad choices, or, mm -hmm. you know. And it's not because he doesn't, that's not the heart of our Father is to want to do that. But he allows things to happen to us. So that, you know, like a shepherd, you know, pulls us back, you know, or will pull a sheep back out of danger. Mm -hmm. He also allows us as free will humans to make the choices we make. Yep. But when the sheep are following him in a nice lane, line, following him faithfully, does he turn around and whack them with the no. stick? No. no. That's, That's the nature of the question is. Yeah. When we're following God and doing his will and staying repentant and staying on the path, does he whack us anyway? And let's look at a group of so, verses so, or not. Go ahead. Well, there's a, so there would be a difference between God disciplining the person he loves who is doing wrong and like the story of Job where, exactly. where Satan was allowed to persecute Job so yep. that God could, because God knew Job was righteous. Yeah, but what did all Job's friends think? They thought he'd done something wrong. You've done something wrong, therefore God's hitting you with that too before. But Job was, 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 uh, uh, he was holding on. He was righteous in the eyes of God, it says so and in the book was, of Job. He was, I, that's not the word I'm looking for, but he was, he, he was, uh, he was faithful. persevering. Yes. Faithful and, and, and persevered and, you know, steadfast. Right. So, anyway. So, if you're walking uprightly before the Lord, walking the straight and narrow path, do you have to be afraid he's going to hit you with the stick? No. Yeah, well, let's look at some of the verses. But it doesn't excuse you from life's problems either because... That's true. You can still be in an auto accident. You can still develop cancer. Uh, yeah. I mean, you can still get COVID-19. We live in this world. 
Yeah. We're not exempt from what happens to everyone. The sun shines on everybody. Yep. In fact, Dr. Campbell just said from England, KBB 1.5, you're going to get it. You, you may as well just expect it. Everybody's going to get it's it. It's like a common cold. You're going to get it. Yeah. He said it won't be any worse than a common cold, but you're going to catch it. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. That's not a judgment from God. That's because we live in a fallen world. Deuteronomy 8, 5. You should know in your heart. Let me give you a chance to find it. Because I'm sure you do know in your heart. You should know in your heart that is. A man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. How does a normal loving father chasten his son? Does he beat him with a rod when he's being good? There are fathers who do that, who beat you and says, now maybe you won't do bad in the future. But that's not the normal loving father. God is a loving father. And a loving father chastens the child when they're doing wrong. 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Well, that brings up a question for me. With regards to Go ahead. The, 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 the chasing. So is that talking about corporal punishment? Which a lot of people have lived with that as, as children. Or... There are kind, loving fathers who will sit down and talk to you sternly, or you know, the, and have that softer approach. But you know that he means what he says, so you better stay on the straight and narrow. So, what does the meaning chasten of mean? this word "chasten"? It could mean either, but the scripture says, "Spare the rod, spoil the child." So, the scripture does not say you cannot discipline your child with the rod but you do it lovingly and not when you're in the heat of anger and there's an age where the rod doesn't work and you're chasing by yeah and yeah Sick. The keys to the car with. <laughs> second samuel chapter 7 verse 14 second samuel chapter 7 verse 14 i will be his father and he shall be my son if he commits iniquity I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. I'll chasten him what? If he commits iniquity. Not if he's being a good loving child, I'll beat him anyway. How about Psalm 6? What's that? I'm sure you can. No, I mean, because just as the years progress, I mean, you can see when discipline is not handled by the parents. Yeah. I'm not talking about, you know, like what we're saying, you know, being a Oh, you're not talking about abusing children, but disciplining them. Disciplining them, teaching them the difference between right and wrong. You know, you, you see that year after year after year. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And that makes it harder for us I mean, because we can't, you know, we have to spare the rod. I mean, we just have to kind of like be creative in our approach of how we handle discipline. Yeah. I will teach college, but I will not teach elementary school. It takes 
a different kind of spirit than I have. A lot more patience, right? That's what I was getting at, yeah. I don't have the patience to teach children. Psalm chapter 6, verse 1. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. That's Psalm chapter 6, verse 1. Exactly. Cool off before you decide to chasten me. And, and any loving father should do that. Should cool down first. And then see how much you want to beat the kid. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 11. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 11. And 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Do you apply correction to good behavior or bad behavior? It's to get them to leave the bad and go back to the good. Proverbs 19.18. See, there's a trend in education now that they're trying to emphasize positive behavior and instead of there being negative consequences or negative behavior, let's replace it with positive, positive reinforcement. Sure, because all people are just born naturally good. Yeah. And, oh, and what, I, what I find is that doesn't work. No, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. They catch on to that very quickly. Yeah. I mean, it, it just doesn't work. You have to have this. Yeah. Proverbs 19.18. Chasten your son while there is hope. And do not set your heart on his destruction. Meaning if you do not discipline children, where are they headed? They're headed toward destruction. So... God's advice is to discipline them while they're still young enough to understand and learn from it and come back to the right path. Don't wait until there's no hope anymore. Hmm. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 30. We'll even start in 29 for context to see the sadness in the eyes of God. It says, why will you plead with me? You have all transgressed against me, says the Lord. Meaning what? They won't obey God, but they want God to be an ATM machine, a Santa Claus. Right? In vain I have chastened your children. They receive no correction. 
Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. So God sent the prophets to call the people to repentance. They refused to listen. They refused to repent. They refused to come back to God. And yet, they want God's blessing. They want to live a life of sin and be blessed by God and have eternal life anyway. It sounds a whole lot like it, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians 11. First Corinthians eleven thirty two. None of this is talking about abusing children. It's talking about encouraging them to follow the correct path in life. First Corinthians eleven thirty two. Verse thirty two tells us why God chastens us. Let me let you find it. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that, I mean, here's the reason, that we may not be condemned with the world. So God doesn't judge us and chasten us when we're doing right. It's because he wants us to repent and come back to him and have eternal life. Hebrews, two verses in Hebrews, and then we'll go on. If your mind stopped acting like the world, does that remind you of Ephesians 4.17? Mm-hmm. It most certainly does. Hebrews 12.7. If you endure chastening... God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? You mean believers can be rebellious sometimes? Believers can be rebellious sometimes. (laughs) Believe it or not. (laughs) And then four verses later, Hebrews 12, verse 11. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Again, reminding us that God's chastening has only one purpose, and that is to bring us to repentance, to bring us to salvation, so that we not be condemned with the world. Don't see any red circles out there, so we'll go on to the next question. Regarding the genealogy of Messiah, let's go back to Matthew chapter 1 because that's where the question comes from. Matthew chapter 1. It says, In the genealogy of Messiah, Yeshua, in Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17, We see that there is a missing generation. That's true. Verse 17 says there are 14 generations, 14 generations, and 14 generations. If you count verses 1 to 17, you find 14, 13, and 14. You don't find the same number. 
says the name that was missing is Abner, and that's right, because of an error in translation when translating Hebrew to Greek. Yes, that's true. The generation of Abner should have been included between Abiud and Eliakim. That's right, that's in verse 13. So, but why does the generation of Abner not appear in genealogy included in the book of Luke? That's correct. The question continues, though. Apart from the missing Abner, why do the genealogies of Matthew and Luke differ at all, let alone to the extent that they do? My answer is yes, Abner is missing in our Bibles in Matthew 1, in verse 13. Abner is. Um, so Abiu begot Abner, Abner begot Eliakim. But notice Abiu and Abner both start with Av. And obviously the scribe got interrupted and came back and picked up in the wrong place. You ever do that? A lunch break, yeah. Sorry, tell me again. In 13. It should say Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot Abner, Abner begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. So in my Hebrew copies of Matthew, Abner's in there. Why hasn't it been corrected? Because the King James Version is perfect, inspired in every <laughs> word in detail. Just <laughs> but at any rate, to go on and answer the question, Matthew contains the genealogy of Joseph, and Luke contains the genealogy of Mary. Normally, he Hebrew genealogies don't include the mother's genealogy. But there's a reason it has to in the Bible. If you follow the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, Look at verse 11. You see that word Jeconiah? Yeah. He's the one who was cursed by God that none of his physical descendants could ever sit on the throne in Israel. So if Messiah had been a physical descendant of Jeconiah, he could not be Messiah. But Messiah has to descend from David. So that's where Luke gives Mary's genealogy to show that Mary also descends from David. So Messiah is a physical descendant of David. And an adopted son of Joseph. Joseph, if it were not for Jeconiah, would have had the right to be king in Israel. That right passes to Messiah because he's an adopted son, not a physically born son. So he's the descendant of David through Mary, and he descends in an adopted fashion through Joseph. So he has the right to be king in Israel. So I put down here that Joseph's line descends from David through Solomon, but has the curse of Jeconiah. Jeremiah 22, verses 24 to 30 is where it says, no descendant, no physical descendant of Jeconiah can ever be king in Israel again. Mary's line descends from David through Nathan. So Solomon and Nathan were half-brothers, both children of David. But he does not have the curse of Jeconiah. 
Next one. Regarding the commandment for a priest not to tear his clothes. It is given in Leviticus 21.10. So how was it referenced by Moses back in Leviticus chapter 10 verse 6? So let's go back to Leviticus chapter 21 and 10. And see if the questioner is correct. And I can tell you already they are. Leviticus chapter 21 verse 10. This is for the high priest. He was the high priest among his brethren on whose head the anointing oil was poured and who was consecrated to wear the garments shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes. What did the high priest do with the trial of Messiah? Tore his robe, which means he wasn't following the commandments, was he? Now let's go back to Leviticus 10.6. Yeah. Yeah. Yul Brenner could not have played <laughs> the high priest. He played Pharaoh just fine. But he played Pharaoh just fine. Yeah. And the king I never saw that movie, but I've heard The King and I was a good movie. Leviticus 10.6, And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Itamar his sons, Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes lest you die. So this is before Leviticus 21.10, and that would bother me if Moses wasn't a prophet. <laughs> yeah. Moses was a prophet, though. He revealed the message from God in Leviticus 10.6 to Aaron and his sons. He then repeated the command of Leviticus 21.10, lest someone think it only applied to Aaron and his sons. So it was given first to Aaron, who was the first high priest, and then it's reiterated later to say, and this applies to all high priests of all time. I kind of liken it to the Sabbath wasn't just given at Exodus 20. Right, the Sabbath was not just given in Exodus 20. It was told about in Exodus 16 and then like repeated again in Exodus 20. So yep. everybody could hear it from, right. the, from the mouth of God. Exactly. So in Exodus 16, Moses spoke it. In Exodus 20, God spoke it himself. Yeah. In verse 7 there, are you still in Leviticus 10? I am. Verse 7 says if you go out of this building, you're going to die forever? No, no, not forever. No, it doesn't say anything about forever. Yeah. No, no, it's, it has to do with, don't mourn the, the corrupt. He's talking about mourning? For his, right, for, for their brothers. For the children. I kind of missed that. Look at back at verse 1. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, that's where they die. And then Aaron's told he can't mourn, he can't grieve, he can't go bury them. And the, the, his sons can't either, right? Right. The living sons. Yeah. But verse 7 just looks like you're stuck in here forever because no, 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 if you go out, yeah. you're taking it out of context. What's the time factor? It was right then. I mean, when could they go out? They could go out not to bury the sons. So once that's over and done, they can go out. Yeah. If you take the text out of the context, you make it a pretext. You ever hear that? Yeah. We ready for the next one? Time's growing short, but we have time, I think, for another. 
The next one is from John 1, 29. So let's go to John 1, 29. Some of these people really dig deep in their study, and that is so great to see. This is another example. John 1 20 says, The next day John saw Yeshua coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That behold, that sure makes it sound like it's written in Hebrew originally, doesn't it? It says, I read that John 1 29, which says, the next day, John saw Yeshua coming toward him and said, Behold, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is a bad translation. Because it should actually be translated as the Lamb of God, the one carrying the sin of the world. What do you think? That word translated who takes away or the one carrying the sin of the world. The Greek word eron, quote, a-I-R-O-N, in quote, A-I-R-O-N, is a present participle, active, which can be properly translated as lifting up or taking away. So to translate as who takes away or as the one carrying can be translated either way. It's just the, that's the nature of a present participle active. You could say, who is taking away the sin of the world? But, you know, they use the active participle sometimes to do the present tense, because there is no present tense in Hebrew. So you could say, who takes away, who is taking away, who is carrying, who's carrying away. Any of those ways can be translated correctly. They mean the same thing. Just some people would look at the one carrying the sin of the world as being different when it's actually not different. That's pretty meaningful, carrying yeah. the sin of the world. So let's look at Mark 4.15. Mark 4.15 uses the same tense of the same word. Mark 4.15, are we there? And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Takes away, this is the same word, iron, in a present participle active. Would you ever want to translate that Satan comes immediately and carries the word that was sown in their hearts? It just doesn't convey the same meaning. It would be correct translation, but I would say, but it's not the best translation because it loses some of the meaning. One of the things they warn us about in the Hebrew primer that we use in our Bible classes in here is that a literal translation is not always the best translation. Sometimes you've got to smooth it out a little. 
Some people smooth it away too much. You're right. The next one is in Genesis 22:12, which is the key to the binding of Isaac. Right. And I oftentimes do that when I'm talking to a group about Acts chapter 20, verse 7. I will pull out the literal Greek, which says, and on one of the Sabbaths, to show that I'm not making this up. That's literally what the Greek says. And they've taken it and, and made it on the first day of the week to try and support a doctrine with something the Greek does not support. So there, there could be what a potential of five, four to five Sabbaths. You know, I, I'm, I might be thinking you got Pentecost. Pentecost without six or seven Sabbaths. There are seven high Sabbaths right. in Leviticus 23, in addition to the weekly Sabbath, in addition right. to the Sabbath right. year. That's, that's exactly my point. Yeah. There are multiple Sabbaths that you just, you know, which one? Does it doesn't matter? No. Yep. And in, in Acts 20, verse 7, on one of the Sabbaths, the verse before tells you it's right after Passover. Right. What do you do from Passover to the Feast of Weeks? You count seven, seven Sabbaths. Seven. Then it says, and on one of the Sabbaths. So it has nothing to do with the Sunday morning church service. Right. Wayne. Yes, sir. I happen to have noticed over recent times um, three books which I had not come across it anywhere else until you made the point about one of the Sabbaths, but I have recently come across three different books who uh, point out that point. So it seems to be uh, getting out there somewhat. Good. Because it's three completely different contexts, but people um, pointing that out. So it, it seems to be being disseminated. Good. I, I may have not noticed it before. I certainly don't remember ever having seen that until I heard you explain that from a while back. Um, but I noticed it since and thought, oh, it, is, it, it, it is, uh, you know, seems to be getting out there a bit. Good. So maybe I don't seem like a two-headed alien anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Genesis 22 in our last couple minutes. Verse 12. He said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The question is going to center around, For now I know. That's the question. Why did God say, Now I know, in a way that suggests he didn't know before? And my answer is, Abraham demonstrated his faith by his actions. God knew Abraham's faith was real. In Genesis 15, 6, we know that Abraham believed God and God accounted him for righteousness. But it teaches us something. That faith without works is dead, as it says in James chapter 2, verse 20. And in Genesis 22, 1, go back to that very first verse. 
Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. What's the difference between testing and tempting? Tempting, you're setting someone up to fail. Testing, you're setting up to succeed. You want Abraham to know and all of us to know that faith is not merely words, but our actions demonstrate our faith. Without this verse, it would be a little less obvious that God judges our faith by our actions. And that's, of course, what James 2 is all about. Yes? God is saying, hey, you got 100 on the test. You got 100 on the test. Did God think he was going to fail? No. no. But that's, that's telling Abraham, now I know you made 100. Right. So Abraham knows that God knows his faith is real. But I think more importantly, you and I see the method God uses to test our faith to see is it real or not. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13. Do you remember it? I'm sure you do. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign of the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you saying let us go after other gods which you've not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. So how does God test our hearts? To see whether we love him or not. And if we do, if you love me, comma. Yes, Edmund, did I hear you again? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sort of struck. When, when um, a keeper was being um, flayed uh, uh, and dying, it, he, he started rejoicing and the, his disciples said to him, how can you rejoice, Rabbi? And he said, all my life I have sought to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind. But I have always wondered about how would I manage with all my bodily strength. He said, and I am rejoicing because now I see I can love God with my body as well. That sort of reminds me of a sort of parallel notion of he, he knew, now I know. Indeed. Thank you. That's a great segue and a good way to end this Bible study. We will pick up tomorrow in Deuteronomy 18 and the next Friday night with more Q&As.